You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that we can improve our content for you, the listener, drop us a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. To catch up on all our past episodes and hear new ones every week, head on over to your Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. Today, as I imagine the vast majority of you know, is the 4th of July. Now, I thought for a long time about what I should do today's episode on, and ultimately, I went through this thought process. To many people, the 4th of July is a time of celebration, of fireworks, cookouts, and beach vacations, and that is totally fine. There is nothing wrong with that. But I think that today should also be something more. A day of quiet reflection on those things, good and bad, that make our nation what it is. So today I wanted to talk about a day of great American shortcoming, in the living memory of you or your parents. Not to unduly criticize America on its most important holiday, but to provide an opportunity for introspection so that we may improve together as a people. For what else is history but a blueprint from which we may build a better future? This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 38, Attica. So, in order to talk about the Attica prison uprising with any semblance of gravity to it, first we need to examine the context of the US prison system in the post-World War II era. And to do that, we need to talk about something called the Big House era. And to do that, we need to talk about the Auburn system. And to do that, we need to talk about the Pennsylvania system. So there is a fairly large amount of context that is important to know when talking about the events of September 9th, 1971. So let's start from the beginning. What exactly is the Pennsylvania system? Well, it's a method of prison management also known as the separate system, the goal of which was to keep prisoners in solitary confinement conditions almost indefinitely so that they would silently reflect on their crimes and criminal ways. It's called the Pennsylvania system after the first prison to be built to the specifications of constant isolation, Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary, completed in 1829, largely supplanted previous popular trends in prison design such as the Panopticon. Practitioners of the Pennsylvania system believed that silence and isolation were rehabilitative. At Eastern State, the prison administration was so committed to enforcing silence in the cell blocks that guards wore socks over their shoes in an attempt to muffle even the sound of footsteps. As it turned out, constant silence and isolation from others did not make prisoners reflect on their crimes, and it did not rehabilitate them. Some of them, it drove to madness. And so, to build off the failures of the Pennsylvania system, prison officials in Auburn, New York, developed an administration system of their own which would eventually unseat the separate system as the dominant ideology of prison management. 
the Auburn system, also known as the Congregate system and the New York system, differed from the Pennsylvania system in that, while during the night, all prisoners were in solitary conditions with enforced silence. During the day, they worked to produce a wide array of goods for the prison to sell. In fact, Auburn Prison was the first prison to make a profit off of its prisoners. Though the system was billed as new and rehabilitative, the Auburn system still had the same inhumanity as its predecessors. The best example of this can be seen in the system's approach to silence. Prisoners at Auburn had to be silent at all times in order to, quote, take away their sense of self. One of the other notable features of the Auburn system was the employment of black and white striped uniforms, which to this day we immediately identify with prison. So now that we know what the Pennsylvania and the Auburn systems were, we can talk about the Big House era. The Big House era spanned the 1930s and 1940s and was characterized by prisons that followed, to some extent, the Auburn system had no rehabilitative programs, and were entirely segregated. One of the last of the really major big house prisons built during this era was the Attica State Correctional Facility, completed in 1931 as a response to a series of increasingly violent riots in 1929. Inside the impenetrable walls that stood two feet thick and thirty feet tall, conditions were miserable and dehumanizing. Inmates spent 14 hours a day in their cells with sparse recreation, inaccessible medical care, poor food, and no employment or rehabilitation training. But this was the reality for many prisons across the country, each with thousands of inmates. So what made Attica special? What was it that placed the prison in a position where the logical terminus was the 1971 riot? Well, to find that out, we need to talk about what happened after the end of the Big House era, ostensibly after the end of World War II, but in reality around 1950, the Big House era came to a close and was gradually replaced by the Corrections era, which began in California and percolated throughout the rest of the nation. Prison administration during this time saw the criminal as sick and in need of treatment and so accordingly focused on rehabilitation and education as paths to reform. But this era would not last. As administrators and social scientists began to see less than ideal results from their programs, they started to question the value of rehabilitative corrections. This came at the same time as social tensions in the late 60s and early 70s were infiltrating these newly desegregated prisons. The influx of social consciousness beginning in the 60s led to the establishment of prison political groups that were used to collectively demand an improvement to prison conditions and the observance of prisoners' rights. The leaders of many of these groups were transferred by prison administration in order to try and end the political development inside prison walls. With the removal of many of these prison leaders, inmates that were once relatively unified began to split off into smaller hostile groups, affecting a massive increase in prison violence. But let's get back to it. What made Attica unique? Why is it something that's woven into the historical narrative of the modern United States? 
Well, it isn't necessarily due to the riot itself, but rather the police response to the riot. Let's talk through it chronologically. In the summer of 1971, inmates at Attica staged a number of peaceful protests against conditions in the prison. When the commissioner of prisons received a letter from the Attica Liberation Faction demanding 28 reforms and improvements to living conditions at the prison, the administration's response was to clamp down further on the prisoners as a whole and give anyone found with a copy of the letter 60 days in solitary confinement. Tensions only rose further. The prison banned all political groups, as well as forbidding black Muslims from practicing their religion. Tensions remained high. The conditions at the prison caused an eventual breakdown in the traditional factionalism caused by racial differences and the sabotage of prison political groups. Solidarity was the word at Attica. On September 8, 1971, a violent confrontation between a guard and a prisoner resulted in his limp body being carried back to his cell. He was alive, a fact that was not apparent to the rest of the prisoners. The next morning during roll call, members of a prisoner group called Five Company heard that one of their members, William Ortiz, was being locked in his cell the whole day. Before departing for breakfast, a number of Five Company members went to Ortiz's cell and freed him. Upon discovering this, prison officials changed the scheduling of when certain inmate groups went from place to place, but neglected to inform the rest of the prison staff. As they were being escorted from breakfast to the yard by corrections officer Gordon Kelsey, they approached the door to the yard only to find it locked. Fearing that they had just entered a trap, that the guards would ambush them in a reprisal and they would meet the same fate as their compatriot one day earlier. The prisoners attacked Kelsey and started a riot that would soon take control of the prison cell blocks, tunnels, and control room. With them would be 42 hostages, both corrections officers and civilians. As police assembled en masse outside the prison gates, negotiations seemingly began almost immediately. Correctional Services Commissioner Russell Oswald was given the duty of negotiating with prisoners, who still retained their list of demands from the Attica Liberation Faction Manifesto. But there was little success from the talks. The governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, was opposed to the demands of the prisoners, and not only did he repeatedly refuse to make an appearance at the prison, but on September 13th, while the prisoners believed that their terms were still under negotiation, he ordered a retaking of the prison by force. On Monday, September 13, 1971, a helicopter flew over the yard of Attica State Prison. Some inmates thought that it was Governor Rockefeller finally coming to the table. And then the gas came. Through an impenetrable wall of tear gas, 550 New York State policemen, plus non-deputized Attica prison employees, and local sheriffs and police from neighboring towns who were invited to the event, opened fire into the yard for two minutes without pause. Many of them had removed all identification, allowing them to act without repercussion. A large number of officers were ordered to quote, find a target and shoot to kill with unjacketed bullets, which are so damaging to the body as to be banned by the Geneva Convention. 
The prison was retaken almost instantly. There was little in the way of armed resistance from the prisoners. But that didn't mean that the violence stopped once the police were inside the gate. As a matter of fact, it was about to get much worse. Prisoners were shot indiscriminately and seemingly for sport. After one prisoner was shot in the chest and leg, he was ordered to walk. When he could not, he was shot in the head. Racial slurs and cries of white power echoed throughout the yard as police fired shots at the black inmates that made up 54% of the prison population. Governor Rockefeller claimed that the retaking of the prison was a great success in the face of the cold-blooded killings of the hostages. In reality, every correctional officer that died during the uprising in Attica, except for one, died as a result of a police bullet. After the smoke had cleared, 29 prisoners lay dead and 85 wounded. Nine hostages had been killed. On the other side, there was not a single death and only one state trooper was wounded, the result of another officer's stray bullet. As the days passed and the government reasserted control over Attica, the reprisals against the inmates grew more and more grotesque. Some prisoners were ordered to strip naked and run through gauntlets of baton-wielding guards. Others were ordered to crawl naked across concrete floors covered in broken glass. Prison doctors were ordered not to treat the men that came into their infirmary, and sometimes literally rubbed salt in the wound. Thanks to the word of the state government, the media and by extension the American people were convinced that the violence and death in Attica had come at the hands of the prisoners, not the police. In a phone call to President Nixon, Governor Rockefeller had only a few simple words to explain the deaths in Attica. That's life, he said. Nelson Rockefeller left the governorship in 1973 going on to become the vice president to Gerald Ford from 1974 to 1977. In 1976, Governor Hugh Carey granted clemency and pardons to all Attica inmates in relation to the riots. In 2000, the surviving prisoners won a class action lawsuit against the state and were awarded $12 million. The state of New York has never admitted explicit wrongdoing at Attica. Currently, there is a memorial outside of the large Gothic main gate to Attica Prison. It is for the 10 corrections officers that died during the uprising, 90% of which were killed by the police. There are so many lessons that we can learn from Attica, both the riot itself, the aftermath, and the context leading up to it. It is my hope that through producing episodes like this one, I can encourage introspection, humanity, and empathy. So, to end this week's episode, I'd like to play you a song written about the Attica prison riot by the British band 10CC. Somewhat ironically, the BBC limited its playtime because they thought it was critical of England's own behavior during the Northern Ireland conflict, which is a whole other episode. This is 10cc's Rubber Bullets, and this is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.